Good evening. Good to see you again. Uh, what time do we end tonight, by the way? Okay. Um, so this morning we looked at a very familiar story, the story of the parable or the story of uh, the Good Samaritan. They name hospitals after it. It's a very well-known story. And uh, we tried to think about some of the... Uh, some of the choices that were made, some of the things that were said, what was done, how people felt when they were making those choices, both in the story and Jesus' interaction with the lawyer. And I want to show you a little bit, kind of pull behind the curtain, the storytelling the story style, that's the word, that I, that I was using this morning is something that was, have, have you ever seen a video called God's Story? It's about a two-hour video that tries to go from Genesis to the end. It's for kids. Anybody seen that or heard of it? A lady in Hemet, California here event, uh, came up with this, and eventually she developed a storytelling method, and uh, a few months ago, maybe about a year ago in Turkey, we learned this method. I just want to show it to you and explain a couple of reasons why it can be helpful in reading the Bible and how you think about the Bible. Uh, maybe I'll start out with a bit of theology we talked about at lunch. The Gospel of John starts out with a very interesting expression. He starts out similar to Genesis and he says, in the beginning was the word, and it's a Greek word, logos, logos, something like that. It was a Greek, the Greek philosophers had this idea already. They had an idea of a, a ta some people in, maybe in Asia, they might have called it something similar to Tao. They had an idea that there was an order. Um, I think in Star Wars they call it the metachlorines. I'm not saying that these are exactly analogous uh, ideas, but there's, there's the idea that there's an order to the cosmos. There's something that brings meaning and order to the cosmos. Many of the people that think about this think about it as something impersonal. And what we learn from John's gospel is that it's not impersonal. You could translate that word instead of in the beginning was the word, you could say in the beginning was the story, or in the beginning was the logic, or in the beginning was the meaning. Those are all uh, acceptable ways of translating that word in different contexts. And so we have an idea that the Son of God is there in the beginning already. The, the original, someone who translated the Bible into another language said, it, you could put it this way, in the beginning the word already was. And then he goes on to say, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And I asked the question at lunch today, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Why doesn't he say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God? I wonder why he puts it in that order. If I was writing it, I would have put the most important thing first, which is the fact that he's God. But he starts out by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Any ideas about that? You ever wonder about that? It's not a not something that's maybe a simple one. Here's an idea. He's t he's, John is trying to explain to us, and John is an older man by now. He's, he's been with Jesus since he was a young man. He was called the disciple that Jesus loved. If anyone was intimate with Jesus, it was John. He suffered a lot for Jesus. He's seen most of his friends die for the sake of the gospel. He's been, maybe according to a tradition, boiled in oil, left on an island in exile near, off the coast of Turkey, where we were not, not far. In fact, his, one of his disciples was martyred in the city where we spent most of our time in Turkey, in Izmir, Izmir called Smyrna. Uh, Polycarp was mar martyred in his 80s, burned to death. Uh, still had some zeal at 80. And uh, so the question, though, is, so John has had all this experience with Jesus, and he decides that the way he wants to first identify Jesus is describing him as the one who was with, who was the Logos with God. Interestingly, the Quran, one of the names for Jesus in the Quran is the Word of God, also called the Spirit of God in the Quran, which is very helpful sometimes in talking to Muslims. It's not a name that's given to any of the other prophets or to Muhammad even. Um, so he the first thing he wants to tell us about Jesus is that he was with the Father, that he was with God, and then that he was God. That help, what, how that has helped me in a practical way is understanding that my identity, and this is very anti-Californian, and in some sense it could even be considered anti-American because one of the, the most foundational things in our culture is, is independence and 
being uh, a loner, being alone, and being mavericks, especially the people who ended up on the left, on the left coast here. And, uh, but our identity is found in relationship. One of my friends who used to be a Buddhist, a Zen Buddhist monk here in California and later became a Christian and worked with Labrie and Francis Schaeffer, he says it this way. He says, uh, God is God alone, but God has never been alone. Where in Islam, in the beginning was God, and God was alone. And that was it. There's a saying in Turkish that would be translated roughly like this, aloneness or loneliness is unique to God. Yalnız look, Allah'a masustur, is how we would say it. You know that, you, you still remember your Turkish, some Turkish? <laughs> uh, loneliness is unique to God. So how does this relate to what we were talking about? We're talking about a story. We're talking about meaning. Well, let me try to see if I can illustrate it with just a finger. I was really enjoying the piano playing earlier because I don't know who was the name of the player, but she hits a lot of notes that we don't always hear. And, uh, but if I do this, does that sound very musical? Is that good? What's wrong with it? It's just by itself, huh? <laughs> What makes music, this is musical, you could say, in a way, but after a while it kind of gets boring just hearing one note. But what if I do this? Maybe you don't like that style of music, but, but that sounds different. And then you say, well, how did that, what's the difference between just, it's all just notes, but what is it, the difference between a note and uh, a bunch of notes together? The note by itself doesn't have very much meaning. It has some meaning, but the notes together have meaning. They, they, and we, if we're alone, we don't have meaning. John, or, uh, Paul says it this way when he writes in 1 Corinthians. He says, without love, I am very little. No, what does he say? He says, without love, I am nothing. That's a very strong statement. I don't know if you thought about it much. Very strong statement. Without love, I am nothing. So within God, there's a relationship already. Before, the, before anything else, before the world began, it frustrates me that when we try to tell the history, when we try to, you, you heard the term a meta-narrative, we try to tell the big story of everything, we usually start with God created. And then we get a theology that we're always trying to do things because God started by doing. Did he? No. Before God did anything, so to speak, now I'm not sure how to, if I'm using the correct theological terms, I'm just putting it in everyday language, but before God got about the business of creating the universe, I can put it, that's accurate, I'm sure, God was already in a relationship. There was already a relationship within God. The love of the Father toward the Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Those, that's some of the kind of language that the Bible uses about it. So, in order to understand our own lives, practical details of our own lives, our marriages, our interactions with other people in our church and in our work, we have to understand something about this that relationship came before activity. You can put it that way. God wasn't about, the, 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 uh, about creating. He was about somehow interacting within the fellowship of, of what we call the Trinity because we can't think of how to express it. Uh, and we understand things in terms of stories. We understand a lot of things in terms of stories. I think that could be perhaps why most of the Bible is written as a story. Some of it is poetry, but, and some of it is uh, lists, and some of it is, uh, uh, you might call logical, I don't know, theses, presenting an idea and trying to defend it like a lawyer would do or something. But most of the Bible is written like stories, not like most of our sermons. So my sermon this morning was an unusual sermon by most sermons I've heard because I didn't have point A, B, and C. I just told the story, but... What I did this morning was more, except for the acting part, the rest of it was more similar to what most of the Bible is actually like. It turns out that only 14% of the people in the world, those people who've done research on this, uh, really prefer learning by reading. Most people prefer, even if they're literate, prefer learning in some other way, either audio or visual or stories or some other means. And so one of the, one of the reasons that that this lady has tried to develop ways of telling stories is because in many cultures, people are not 
functionally literate. They can li read, but they don't enjoy reading, and they're not, it's not a culture that enjoys a lot of interaction with books. And most people are like that, except for the people who are professors. They're the ones who like to read, so they teach us in the way that they like to teach, but that's only 14% of the population. The rest of us, it's not our style of learning. Anyway, that's a little background about why I would like to talk to you about this method. And I'd like to make it practical and if, with a few examples. So this morning, I, we, we told the story, and then I, this is a picture frame with a question mark in the middle of it. And it represents uh, the idea of the setting. So the first question I might ask after I'm telling a story is, tell me about the setting, what's going on here, and what's the problem, what's the issue, what's the, try to get a big picture of it. And the next question I might ask is what happened in the past. And then I might ask about the people that are involved, including God. That's the Hebrew uh, version of God from the Old Testament, Hebrew name. And then I might take you through the story slowly, step by step. And I'm, I'm asking three main kinds of questions at the beginning. I'm asking what did the people do, what did they say, and what choices did they make? And were there any other choices that they could have made? And then I asked three more kinds of questions. I asked, how do the people feel, or what were the how did this influence their relationships? Uh, what was the result of what was done in the story, and the impact of that result, or maybe the impact and the results from that? I don't know. There's like a this is like a pool of water with the ripple. Think of a little. There's a, the water. The thing rock drops in, and then it spreads out. And then the last question is, what do we learn from this? Those are the kinds of questions I use. And we can use those throughout our lives. We can use those when we... Every decision that we make, we're having an opportunity to relive the gospel. That's how I have been learning to think of it. The gospel is for Christians. I, it took me about 49 years, until I was about 49, to really feel that. After I became a Christian, I told you I was an atheist. I was very zealous. I was very religious. I did lots of good religious things. I had all the spiritual disciplines going, and I'm a pretty undisciplined person, so it was a lot of work for me. It wasn't easy, and did a lot of these things, and, but I wasn't feeling very close to God a lot of the time. I was always asking, God, help me to feel more intimate with you. I want to be closer to you, and I would give sermons on intimacy, and I would talk to, you have to spend a day in prayer and fasting at least once a month, and then it got up to once a week. It just, none of it was getting me closer to God until I had a breakthrough in my relationship with my wife. An older couple helped us, and I realized I'm not really understanding about loving God. I'm obeying God, but you can obey God without loving Him. You can't love Him without obeying Him, but you can't obey Him without loving Him. You can do a lot of things, religious things, without necessarily loving God. So this story I told you this morning talks about that a bit. It says two important commandments. One of them is... Love God. And the other one is loving people. And in our evangelism in Turkey, we ended up focusing a lot on the second one. Can you guess why? By the same author. He, the same author says something about this, John, in his letter. He says, if you say that you love the invisible God, I'm paraphrasing, and you don't love your brother, what kind of person are you? He says you're a liar. Wow, that's a pretty strong thing to call someone, isn't it? You're a liar. He says, if you say that you love the invisible God, but you don't love your brother who you have seen, sorry, <laughs> you're a liar. Um, and James would agree. Some people thought James was a little hard-nosed. When James is talking about looking in the mirror and to see what kind of person he, he, you are, I preached for years that he was talking about the Bible. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the law of liberty. Hmm. I'll let you do a Bible study and figure out what that is. But I would say, suggest that it has, is some, similar to what is called the law of Christ. And Paul tells us how you fill the law of Christ. How do you fulfill the law of Christ? Bear one another's burdens, and then you'll fulfill it. Hmm. James goes on to say, if you keep all of the laws but don't keep one, you're guilty of all. And he talks about the royal law. Hmm. So I'll let you go back and do some more Bible study on that, because that's not our main point here. But uh, I'm going to tell you a story just from today and use some of these same questions. So today I was coming to the Breaking of Bread here, driving 25 miles. I looked at 
the, the gas gauge, and oh, my son had used the car, and it was on, almost on empty. But I know that when the red light comes on, I still have 24, 25 miles to go, so I thought, no problem. And I'm coming, and I'm about eight miles away, and the car engine stops, and I'm on the freeway. So I try to restart it, and it restarts, but then it stops again. So I pull off, and I realize maybe it's out of gas. Maybe because I was on a slope, the thing didn't register. I'm feeling kind of stupid, and uh, I call Brother Dixon, and his cell phone isn't on, and I call the chapel, and Glenn answers the phone and says, uh, let me, oh, I don't normally answer the phone, but I'll come and help you, and he says, he says something to me on the phone, he said, um, this happened to me just recently. I, you know, sometimes the cars are like that, and you, and he, and and so I'm going to ask you a question. How do you think I felt when he said something like this happened to me recently and the gas gauge didn't register zero? How do you think I felt at that point? I felt less stupid. I felt much better because I thought somebody else has been through this and I'm not the only stupid person. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm not trying to say Glenn is stupid. <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> it's still better than being stupid alone. I mean... <laughs> uh, feel better being, than being stupid alone. So I felt comforted and I felt better because someone else has been through this and, and probably that's why he said it. He said, he, well, someone will feel good about this. He'll feel better maybe if I, if I say that. Uh, then I, uh, I'm thinking I'm going to be teaching on the Good Samaritan. I wonder if there's a lesson in here. <laughs> Nobody stops, of course. A lot of people drive by. I'm at a place where they could stop. And, uh, and, I, ha- and I realize I have no wallet. No wallet, but thankfully I had a bunch of change, so I had 450 in change, and I went over to the station and filled up the car, but that still wasn't enough. By that time, Glenn had arrived, and I tried to start the car too many times, and it wouldn't start. So now the battery's dead, and the car won't start, and there's no gas in it. So Glenn goes and gets some more gas. We jump start the car, put the more gas in, and it does start, and it's working now, thankfully. And uh, then we're driving to the chapel, and on the right side of the road, there's a guy picking up, pushing a pickup truck without the pickup. I don't know, it's hard to explain. It had the chassis, but it was nothing on the back, and he's pushing it. And so we decide to stop and help this guy. Why do you think, what do you think went through my mind when I made the decision to stop and help him? What choices could I, was I, what was going through my mind at that point, do you think? <laughs> Another stupid person. I don't know. <laughs> I was actually thinking something more generous. <laughs> uh, what, what could I have been thinking? I know how you feel. So here's someone who felt with me, he felt compassion, which is what the word compassion means, to feel with. And I think, this just happened to me recently, just 10 minutes ago. And I know how this guy feels. And I'm late to church, and I'm going to miss the breaking of bread probably. But, you know, I'm going to be teaching on the Good Samaritan, so perhaps I should... That wasn't the first thing, thankfully, that went through my mind. I did think that. There, there was some sociologists did some research with seminary students. who were, And they, um, they said, we're going to make a drama on the topic of the Good Samaritan. Okay? And so the seminary students were very excited. And they were coming to this. And they placed a person that looked like a derelict, homeless-type person in the path between the seminary and the studio. So they had to go past him. And the seminary students would go past the guy to go and do this drama about the Good Samaritan. Eventually, they put the guy in the doorway, so they had to literally step over him to get to... And most of the people didn't stop to help. Hmm, something not connecting there. Anyway, what went through my mind is I've been through this. I know what this guy is feeling. And it wouldn't feel right for me to have just been helped by somebody else... And I now have an opportunity to help someone who's in the same position I was in. And now I could just go to church, which is very religious, or I could help this guy, which might be more godly. <laughs> uh, and so we helped the guy, and that was fine. We helped him push it off the road. Um, so if I use some of these questions, uh, you can think about what I did. You can think about what was said in this conversation what choices I made and what other choices I might have made. For instance, what other choices could I have made this morning when I, my car ran out of gas? Like, I first realized it ran out of gas, and before I called Glenn, what, the chapel, what choices could I have made at that point? 
Well, I did pray, but that's good. I did pray, but what, else, what other choices could I have made? The opposite of praying is <laughs> cry, curse. <laughs> I could have done that. I could have, ah, something. It wouldn't have been a Christian word. And uh, I could have done that because you guys wouldn't know. You, you, I'd still be here in a nice suit and tie, and you wouldn't know that I maybe lost my sanctification uh, on the way. What else could I have done? I tell you, I was tempted. I thought, I don't really want to call them because they're going to think I'm stupid. And they're going to think I'm one of those absent-minded guys who never fills their car up with gas. And I don't want people to think that about me, even though it might be true. I don't want people to think that. So I, I have to confess that went through my mind. Uh, and, you know, humility is good for the soul or something like that. So. But it was so comforting when Glenn said to me, I've, I've been through something like this recently. Now, does anybody see a connection between that story and the other story I told you this morning? So in that story, we have some religious guys. They walk by, and they don't help the guy. And then we have a Samaritan, and he stops and helps. And I asked you the question this morning, why would Jesus choose a Samaritan to be the hero of the story? It would be like choosing, um, you know, some some uh, Muslim to be the, the hero in a story taking place in New York after 9-11. Or like having a, a Jew be the story in, in, in modern-day Palestine, in the West Bank. They'd have some Jewish guy, and he'd come along and help. It would be kind of like that. They're not on good terms. So why would Jesus choose that person as the hero? What, or maybe not a why question, but what, what do we learn about what do we learn more from this story by having that kind of a hero as opposed to just being, for instance, a, an ordinary Jewish person who wasn't religious or have the Samaritan be the guy who was the victim and have someone, a Jewish guy, help or something like that. Those are other ways that Jesus could have told the story. So why, the Samar why is the Samaritan the hero in this story? So there was some, maybe um, empathy right there, or um, compassion, in the sense of his own didn't receive him. Yeah. What other thoughts? What other reasons why, or what other, what other things can we learn by the fact that Jesus chose a Samaritan as a hero? I'll ask it that way. I'm not looking for one specific right answer at this point. And how does that help us understand the question, who is my neighbor? Maybe elaborate. What is it? What do you mean? How, how, how was he challenging that notion of between the connection of religion and nationalism? I mean, just because I'm an American doesn't mean I'm a Christian? And how does that help us understand what a neighbor is by having a Samaritan as the hero of the story? That's good. And I can see that if the Samaritan was the victim, then that would have helped us understand the idea that we should love people of any background, any race. But I, it's harder for me to understand how, why would he have the Samaritan as the hero, though? Yes. Maybe elaborate a little more. Mm -hmm. 
how is, what's, what is the lawyer going to understand about this, about neighbor, being a neighbor from this, from this interaction? Here is a, put in a modern context, a Muslim, let's just say, we're telling the story among a Christian group, we say, there's this Muslim and he comes along and helps and, and the two Christians walk by, in fact, one of them was a pastor and the other one was a deacon and they don't do anything, I'm just putting it in a different context, like if we were the audience that Jesus was talking to, and he says, here's this Muslim and he does, he does the, these things, he shows mercy to this man and the, uh, the lawyer recognizes that he had shown mercy so it challenges us. I'm going to leave you with that question. I'm not, I, it might bother you that I'm not going to give you my opinion because I want you to wrestle with it longer. I do think there's things that we can learn about it. Many times when I've heard this parable taught, we've taught about, neighborly about neighborliness or about trying to help the person that we come across in need. And those are all very valid things. I think it could be more expansive than that. I think it could be a little bit bigger than that in some ways. Uh, here's what these uh, pictures represent. But since we are literate, we might as well use some words. There's, so there's a place and a problem. That's telling what, where was the context of the story. What happened beforehand? Who were the people involved, including God? What, were, what, what did the people do? What did they say? And what choices did they make? How do they feel or how did, what was the relational aspect of what was going on? Who, what were the results of this and who was impacted by that? And then what do we learn? We can go through each of these. What did we learn from what he did? What did we learn from what he said? What did we learn from the choices that he made? And we can ask these questions in our own life in almost every, op, in every situation. We make choices all the time. We make choices to live or to die. To live to God or to die to ourselves or to live to ourselves and to die to God is sadly the other side of it. Uh, we make, I think of it as Christmas and Easter choices all the time, but you'll, maybe you'll understand what I mean by that in a minute. If I, hopefully I'll have a chance to get to that. Uh, then when we want to get it to our, more of our own, bring it to home, I'm going to put these questions up here and I want to ask these questions about the story of the Good Samaritan briefly. Does anything like this happen today? For instance, today, are there people who are, uh, people who are expecting help from either God or from someone else, maybe a religious person, and they've, they feel victimized, they've been hurt in some way? Are there people today like that, that feel hurt and victimized and looked over by God? Yeah, people like that. Uh, next question. Has that happened to anyone you know? Has it happened to you or to someone you know? Yes? Okay. Uh, can anyone give me an example of how it maybe has happened to you or to someone that you know? You've been a victim. Maybe you've been, we talked about the man, what he might have been feeling. He had no clothes, so he might have felt ashamed. He had been beaten up, so he's, going, he's in physical pain. He was left alone, and he was half dead, so he's fear... Uh, shame, a lot of things he was going through at the time. Have you ever felt that way and, and s expected maybe that someone was going to help you and they didn't? Or maybe that God was going to show up and he didn't? Or do you know someone like that? Can anybody tell a, a story or give an example? In order to tell a story from our own life, we'd have to take off our mask and admit that even though we have Jesus, we still have some problems, which we do. And some of us are probably even not feeling good tonight. Maybe you came out for some other reason because you felt like we were supposed to, or some, but something maybe really happened bad this week and you're not feeling very good tonight. Maybe, maybe everyone that showed up is, but somebody probably isn't. Statistically, about 10% of us are probably depressed or discouraged in some way right now. Interesting that, let me just stop on that. This was encouraging to me, similar to, uh, similar to Glenn saying, I've been through this before. Paul, in his letters, when he's writing the Bible, he says, uh, I was depressed. Um, 
And I was, uh, he says, God who comforts the depressed encouraged me by the coming of Titus. And if you look, if you study that, what he's talking about and the incident, it take, it's off our tra- topic this, tonight, but he's saying, I was depressed and I was encouraged by the coming of Titus and there was a wide open door for ministry and I didn't take it. And in fact, I was in, the reason why I was encouraged by Titus is because he told me about what was going on with you. And I was worried about you. And so God who comforts the depressed comforted me through the comfort through Titus. And Paul didn't feel ashamed to write that in a, a letter that was going to be read aloud in the churches. So I don't feel ashamed as a missionary to talk about these things. And I think someone asked the question, how are we going to maybe get closer in some ways? I forget how the question was worded in, within a church. Part of it is you have to take off your mask and you have to let other people know when you're hurting. Like I was tempted this morning not to let you know how stupid I was for not filling up gas earlier. I could have. I was up early. I could have gone and gotten gas. I didn't need to put myself in that risky situation. So it was embarrassing. Uh, But there's a lot more embarrassing things that I'm not sharing right now. That's a small one. So if we ask, has it ever happened to me or anyone I know, Then you can ask, is it happening right now? Is there something in my life right now that's like this? Hmm. And in what way is it happening? And then you can ask the question, so how can this story help us? Those are the the kind of application questions. So this is similar to an inductive Bible study method that you may have heard. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? This is just looking at it similar to the way you'd look at a plot of a story or a plot of a movie. You have characters, you have action, you have purpose, and you're trying to... But then if you think about your life in that terms, that in the beginning there was a relationship with the Father and the Son. And that was what motivated everything, because God is love. And the God who is love created us in his image, and he blessed us, and we left him. We left him alone. In a sense, we could say we left him on the road, and we ignored him, and we didn't, we didn't realize that the blessings that we had were from him, and we thought they were ours, and we thought the intelligence we had was because we worked for it, and our, the fact that we were good in athletics or that we were pretty or that whatever it was, was something somehow that was from us. We forgot those things. Um, here's the, for those who are more picture-oriented, do these things happen today? And what about in my life? And what about now? And how does this story help? Now, the, the class I took was a five-day class, and so I can't explain it in 15 or 20 minutes about how to tell stories and how to ask questions about stories. But I just wanted to give you an introduction to the idea. And uh, with the last few minutes, I'd like to look here. I've been asking these, these questions. The first question is represented by a question mark. I've been asking these questions to maybe a thousand people over the last few years, face to face. I've asked it to many crowds on the streets in Istanbul, so maybe 10, 20, 30, 50 people. I've asked it in church settings. I've asked it in university settings. I visited an atheist group and I asked some of these questions there. I told them, I asked them permission ahead of time, and I uh, asked them some of these questions at one of the universities. I, I've asked them in a business context. I was invited to a business in Turkey, and they asked 30 people in the room. And, and so I've heard a lot of people's answers from many different countries. And the questions are meant to lead us into the gospel. And it will connect to the story in a minute. If I have time, I'll show you the connection. So the first question is, what is the purpose or meaning of life, represented by a, que- a question mark? Any answers to that? What is, what is the purpose and meaning of life? Glorify God, Westminster Confession of Faith. There you go. What else? Any other questions? Or that maybe I mean any other answers? What is the purpose or meaning of life? To do the will of God. A Muslim would agree with you. That's what Islam means, to do the will of God. What other what other answers? And I, I'm not rejecting the answer. It's true. To be fruitful. Anything else? To know God. Okay. I'll give you, uh, well, the second question I'll ask first. Then the second question is, what is the biggest problem in the world? Uh, The globe. 
what do you think might be the biggest problem in the world? Or what answers might you hear on the streets? Maybe not your own answer, but what answers might you hear? Selfishness? Evil? Poverty? We hear that a lot. Poverty, greed, economics. What else? Unbelief? Ramon, I thought you said hunger, but unbelief also. And hunger is another big one. Yeah. So I've, I've, there's a wide variety of answers. One time on the street in Istanbul, the guy said death. That was a good one. I hadn't heard it before. The biggest problem in the world is death. A philosopher on, the, on TED website, if some of you are familiar with that, that's his answer too. The biggest problem in the world, he says, is death. 100%. <laughs> Everyone faces it. And he gives several other reasons. Uh, what, I noticed in, what I noticed in asking these two questions is that about 80% of the people say that the, the purpose and meaning of life is something to do with me. It might even be a religious purpose, but it's something mostly focused on me. About 20% say something to do with God or other people. When I ask the second question, what's the biggest problem in the world? Usually, if I, like I'll say, what, what do all these, question, all these problems we've listed today have in common? We've said evil, hunger, uh, poverty, uh, anything that they all have in common, selfishness, sin, and evil was another answer. So sin, evil, yeah. What they all have in common at a root is something to do with selfishness or evil, uh, rejecting God, staying away from God, separating ourselves from a relationship with God. And so do you see a connection between the questions yet? If most of the people's answer to the first question is, I want to pursue something for myself, and most of the people's answer to the second question is, uh, the biggest problem in the world is the root issue is selfishness or something like this, then you can see why the world is why it is. And so my goal in asking these first two questions is to get to people to see that I'm the biggest problem in the world. If, if there were seven billion people just like me, the world would be pretty much like it is. Wouldn't be better. Uh, and then I say, what is the opposite of selfishness? And people will usually say love. Sometimes they'll say altruism or giving. And so then this is, the questions get progressively harder. So the question here is, what is love? Notice I have a stone heart. This is not. What is love? I'm waiting for your thoughts. Selflessness. That's a Buddhist answer. <laughs> but it's good. It's, it's true. But, but I could be selfless without loving, couldn't I? For instance, I could give all my possessions to the poor. That's pretty selfless. But I could do it without love, according to 1 Corinthians 13. God is love. What is love? We can't really say that love is God, but we can say that God is love. In Islam, we can say that God is loving, but we cannot say that God is love. Because in Islam, God can't be love in his essential nature because he was alone at the beginning and would have to create someone in order to love. At least that's how I understand it. But within Christianity, we can say that God is love. Anything else we can say? What is love? I'm going to give a very simple answer, and it connects with the story. In 1 Corinthians 13, there's only two positive things he says about love. The rest of them are negative, pretty much. Two positive things he says is love is patient, and love is... Kind. Here we have a sign that says it. It's much easier to have a sign than to carry this out. It says, love is patient and love is kind. When we talk about the patience and kindness in, within God, we say, usually use two different words. We usually use, for his patience, we usually use the word mercy. When we talk about his kindness, we usually use the word grace. But they're the same basic ideas. So love is patient and love is kind. And I would say that love is so patient, also let me start with kindness, I'll say love is so kind that it sees those who are in need at a distance and it goes to them 
because it feels compassion. It hurts with them. It feels for them. And, and it meets their needs. And it doesn't respect, expect anything in return. It just keeps giving. That's, that's how kind love is. And love is so patient that it... So in, in essence, you could say, the first part about kindness, that it is initiating to give life. And in terms of God's... In terms of understanding patience, God's patience is... The, the patience we're talking about within love is so patient that it will even love its enemy, or those who are angry with it, put it more practical, like in a marriage context, even those who are angry with it, even those who are insensitive to its needs, it will love those people, even to the point of giving its life. So one is responding to the point of death, the other is initiating to give life, and that's where Easter and Christmas comes in, I don't know if you can see the connection, we've got Christmas, God becoming a man, coming to where we were, we were, we were the ones on the road naked, all of us. We were the ones on the roads beat up. We were the one on the road left alone. We were the ones on the road that were half dead. In fact, maybe more than half. Uh, and God came to us. And so he, he became a man. He lived among us. And Jesus had to say at the end of his ministry, Have I been with you so long, Philip? And yet you do not know me. So it wasn't, just his, it wasn't just his own who rejected him or who didn't understand him. Even his closest disciples didn't understand him. They traveled with him for three years. They saw his miracles. They'd seen many miracles. And we were talking about this earlier today. And at one point after seeing a number of his miracles, they said, do you care? Now you have to realize they were in a boat. There was a large storm. They thought they were drowning. They were experienced fishermen. Jesus was sleeping. But they still thought, well, he doesn't really care. Don't you care that we're drowning? Uh, so love is, is that patient and that kind. When I talk about Easter, we're talking about love is so kind that it goes to the point of death. And there's many scriptures that we could use to, that, that show the same connection. For instance, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 say that, in fact, someone could open to that because I don't have it memorized. And I, let's see, do I have my glasses? 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Uh, By this is the the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. It's Christmas. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation meaning atoning sacrifice. Or, in other words, the one who died so that our sins could be forgiven. Uh, that's that's uh, Easter. That's the death and resurrection of Christ. And so every, every situation that we're in, we have an opportunity to live out Christmas and Easter. We have an opportunity to go to people. We have an opportunity to show that kindness. Jesus goes so far, I think I have it on the slide, but I won't get to it. Jesus goes so far, the the only three things that he identifies that I can find so far in his teaching, where he says, if you do this, then you're sons of God. There's only three things. Anybody guess what they are? Remember them? One of them is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And there's two more. He says, if you do this and this and this, they're both, one's found in Matthew 5, one's found in Luke 6. If you do this and this and this, then you will be called sons of God, or then you will be like your Father in heaven. One of them is love your enemies, and the other is, and the reason Jesus gives, it says, look, God sends rain on the just and the unjust alike, so you should be like your father, just as your father in heaven is perfect, you should be perfect. That's why you should greet strangers. That's their logic. The same reason that because God cares for his enemies, and God sends rain on good and bad people, and sun, mostly sun down here, I guess, in Southern California, but uh, I guess... What does that tell us? Does that mean we're good or bad? Anyway, then you should treat, that, treat others. Romans chapter 5, he, he deals with it again. While we were helpless, while we were ungodly, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's how we know what love is. There's many other places we find it. Just start looking for them. There's lots of them. 
where he talks about the patience and kindness of God or the mercy and grace of God and how that can be lived out in our lives as Christians. So how do you live it out? Or I ask people on the street in Turkey, where do we find examples of that kind of love? And pretty much they say, no, nowhere. Who's been an example of that kind of love? Well, any of the prophets? Then I tell them the story of the gospel. I say, before the beginning was the word, and he was with God, right? The word of God is eternal. Even before there was the book or any, any holy books, and he became flesh in a certain point in history, and he, and he lived a life, and he showed that kindness by healing the sick, and he raised the dead, and he, and he dealt with people that were different backgrounds from him, and he did many different things, and he showed his patience. Even one of his enemies, he washed his feet before he, was, he knew he was going to betray him, and he washed his feet. He showed his patience, and then he died, and then he came back to life. And I say, does anybody know who this is? I tell a longer version, but I say, does anybody know who this is? Most of the time, about half the time, they don't even know who I've been speaking, but I've just gone into the details of the gospel, starting from before creation, how the word became flesh and lived among us, and they don't know who I was speaking about. Uh, so it's, it's not that Muslims have rejected the gospel. Most of them have never met a Christian, and most of them have never understood or heard the gospel clearly. Without love, I'm nothing. We've already talked about that. Here's from the story. I've run out of time, so I'm going to do it very quick. From the story, we have the victim. And he's the one who's, I've lost what was mine. We have the robbers who say, I'll take what is yours. We have the religious people. And sadly, sometimes that's too much like us. I'm going to keep what's mine. I'm not going to give to you, but I'm not going to take from you either. Everything's fair. Then we have the Samaritan. I'll give what's mine because I care for you. And we have the innkeeper. I'll give what's mine so I can get something back for it. And there was only one person in the story who was the neighbor. And so the questions we can ask ourselves is, what, when have we played these roles? When have we played the role of when have we been in the role of the robber? When we've tried to take something from someone else? And we can do that very religiously. We can fish for compliments. We can do something nice for somebody because we want them to think we're a good Christian. We can help somebody because we're expecting that, you know, we know it's expected of us and we don't want to be ashamed because other people are doing it. But those aren't because we love each other. And those aren't because we love God. Those are self-motivated uh, actions. They're not loving Others benefit from it. Notice in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, it profits me nothing. Other people benefit, the poor benefit, but I don't benefit. There's no benefit back to me because it wasn't love. It was done in, it was done in my own strength, my own way. There's too many words here, <laughs> so I won't read all those other words. But just for those of you who are more visual, I'll show you some pictures of the kinds of people and what motivates them. And, and I've already given some of this in verbally, but I'll just give it with the pictures. The t people that are hardest to love are the people we can get nothing back from. So there's a place over here where there's a lady who doesn't know her name, and she doesn't know who she is. And she thought she needed a ride home tonight because she didn't know that she's living at the... Uh, the place, whatever that place is called over here, the home, Western Assembly's home. I'm, what do I get back from her? Why, do I, why, why would I stop and spend time and talk with her? She's not going to even remember that she talked to me, maybe. Hmm. The people that we don't get anything back. And I'm, there's probably somebody in this room, I'm pretty sure there might be somebody in this room that has a need that's been hurt in some way. And maybe we just don't notice them. Or maybe we notice them like the religious people, but we don't, we're, we don't go to them. Or we, maybe we go to them, but we don't feel anything. And so when we help them, they don't feel very much love. But we're thankful for their help, but we wish we still feel alone when they've done helping us, if you know what I'm saying. So one type of person that's very difficult to love is the helpless. And the other one is even harder to love is the enemy. Or the person who's angry with us, the person who's mad at us, the person who's unjustly accused us, the person who has mistreated us, that boss or that child, that disrespectful child or that, un, that, that mean parent or whoever it is. And so I've given these definitions briefly, but initiating with kindness, responding with patience is really what 
these are talking about. Here's the verses I said to you earlier, and we'll close with these since I've gone over time. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And here's the Luke passage. But love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to grateful and ungrateful and evil people. Do you know any ungrateful and evil people? Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful, which is a parallel to when he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Compare the two passages. You'll see he's talking about the same thing. He's not talking about some sort of like, uh, well, anyway, a list of rules. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We'll close with that. I wish I could have gotten more in the short time, but um, that's as much as I could fit in. And let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I uh, thank you for this uh, assembly here. I thank you for the love that they've shown to our family in different ways in the past and and the love that I see among them. And I want to pray with the Apostle Paul for them that their love will abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, uh, that their love would overflow so that they might attain to the blamelessness and holiness that you desire. I pray, Father, that you would help them to, to open their eyes and notice one another. If there's those among them that are needy, or maybe there's some among the assembly that rub us the wrong way, someone that seems too much this way or too much that way. I pray that you'd help us to love both of these kinds of people. I pray that you'd help us to have this kind of love in our homes towards our husbands, towards our wives, our parents, our children, our siblings, in our workplaces, out in the community, as we shop. Help us to, under, to see opportunities to demonstrate your patience and kindness, to demonstrate what Christmas and Easter really mean in every interaction that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your patience with the extra eight minutes I stole.